This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. A vicious crime in Boston leaves a white woman dead, and her badly injured husband blames a mysterious black man. Her husband is eventually exposed as the mastermind of the murder and the hoax, but not before the city is torn apart. And they just started strip searching young black men on the street, like making them pull down their pants. And people who in no way reflected the description of the suspect. It was really appalling, the police conduct. A murder in Boston and its aftermath coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. In 1989, Charles and Carol Stewart, a white couple, were shot in a Boston neighborhood. The pregnant wife is killed. The husband is badly injured and blames a black man for the murder. A gruesome picture of the couple is splashed across newspapers, and Stewart's harrowing 911 call is played and replayed in the media. Oh, man. Jack. Jack, can you give me anything? Just look out the window. Can you see anything? Oh, I'm blanking out. You can't blank out on me. I I need you, man. Jack. Jack. City of Boston goes on high alert. Police stop and frisk countless black and brown men, break down doors, and ransack homes, and then finally arrest the suspect. But the crime, at least the husband's telling of it, turned out to be a hoax. Charles Stewart had plotted to kill his wife, and later killed himself when he became a suspect. The murder, the lies, and the way white leaders in government, police, and especially the press, fueled it open wounds that still sting the city of Boston decades later. What did the Stuart hoax expose about race, crime, and policing at the time? And what lessons can we take from it today? A new podcast and documentary, Murder in Boston, aims to tell the whole story. And Adrian Walker is the host. He's a veteran journalist and an associate editor for the Boston Globe. Adrian Walker, welcome to A Word. Thanks very much for having me. Now, before we start, we'd like to just tell listeners that this is a violent incident on many levels. And that includes domestic violence, police violence, and suicide. So it may not be suitable for all listeners. You would just start working at the Boston Globe when the Stuart shooting happened in 1989. Do you remember where you were when you first heard about the crime? And what were some of your immediate reactions at the time as a journalist? I had started at the Globe in May of 1989. So I'd been there five months when this happened. I first heard about it from the 11 o'clock news. And right away, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a huge story. Topping News 7 tonight, a brutal attack on a pregnant woman and her husband as they left childbirth classes at a Boston hospital. The Stewart case was one of those news stories that exploded from inside your television set. Several police officers said tonight the stakes have changed in the street wars. And I remember getting in early the next day, everybody did, and the whole newsroom was on high alert right away. There was like this immediate sense, even though murders were not uncommon in Boston, in October of 1989, and it wasn't even the only one that night, but there was this immediate sense that, oh my God, this is a big story. So you have this horrendous crime. It's 1989. It's Boston. It is a year after a presidential election in which crime was a major issue that was exploited by George Bush, the Republican candidate, and thrown at Michael Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts at the time. 
did that play a role? Did the fact that this seemed to be sort of this lingering example of what Bush said about crime being out of control in Massachusetts, you think that played a role? Absolutely. And we have a clip of Bush in the podcast, you know, talking about crack cocaine. Our most serious problem today is cocaine, and in particular, crack. Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. Everyone who uses drugs, everyone who sells drugs, and everyone who looks the other way. This is a moment of a lot of hysteria about quote-unquote inner-city crime, right? Crack has come to cities. Murder rates are soaring, including in Boston. And there's this whole idea that cities have now become these dangerous hellscapes. And it plays into all of that. The Boston police responded very aggressively to this murder. What did they do and why in particular did they target the local black community after this murder? The night of the murder, even before Carol Stewart has died, the mayor of Boston, Ray Flynn, is standing outside Brigham and Women's Hospital saying we're going to put every single available detective on this case. It's happened in this neighborhood called Mission Hill, which is right near the hospital, really close to the hospital where they had been at the birthing class, and they just went wild. They had this description Chuck Stewart had given in an ambulance. We've been attacked by a black man in a tracksuit, as he put it, a skinny black man in a tracksuit, and they were going to go find that skinny black man in a tracksuit. A skinny black man in a tracksuit in 1988, 89, it was common fashion, not just for black people, but it was something associated with black folks. What did the police do to the local black community to find the suspect? The crime occurred next to a public housing project called Mission Maine. And what they really did was just tore through the project. They went through people's houses. They did terrible things. And one of the most shocking things is there's a place in Mission Hill called the Tobin Community Center. That's almost a character in the podcast. It's like this great community center where all the kids hung out. And they just started strip searching young black men on the streets, like making them pull down their pants. And people who in no way reflected the description of the suspect. It was really appalling, the police conduct. Prior to this sort of extra aggressive behavior because of the sort of Stuart hoax, what was the reputation of the Boston police force like in that community, in the black community in Boston before this? They had a reputation even before this of over-aggressively, you know, dealing with black communities. And they were searching kids before this. They had a policy called stop and frisk that allowed them to search people for what they claimed was probable cause, basically randomly. A judge ordered them to stop it, declaring it unconstitutional. They wouldn't stop. They just ignored the court order. And all of this was before the Stuart murder. They were totally out of control. Was there something unique about Boston racism at that time? Yeah, absolutely there was. And one of the things we tried to do in the podcast was put this into historical perspective. You know, in 1974, we have school desegregation in Boston that becomes this intense, violent racial war, particularly in the neighborhoods of South Boston and Charlestown. Nowhere is busing fought harder than in the Catholic neighborhoods of Boston. When the buses arrived, the black students ran into the school under a hail of verbal abuse. The violence, of course, came in the afternoon when the buses were stoned and black children injured. They were throwing eggs at the window and trying to hit people with them. 
Remember, right, we was in school, there was stone glass at black people's and little kids. Are you going back to school tomorrow? No. No way. It really pits black communities against white communities. It sparks racial violence, hundreds and hundreds of episodes a year. This goes on into the 80s, into the mid-80s. And this also is part of the backdrop of the Stewart case. This was a city that was really dealing with intense racial strife. Ray Flynn, in fact, had been elected mayor in 1983 on a platform of being a racial healer as a, a white guy from Southie who wasn't a bigot and could bring us all together and we'd all sing Kumbaya. But no, the racism in those days was very intense. It was deep. And that's all part of the backdrop of this story. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the story behind the Murder in Boston podcast and documentary with journalist Adrian Walker. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the Murder in Boston podcast and documentary with host and journalist Adrian Walker. So as time went on, Charles Stewart's story about the murder began to unravel. How did it begin to unravel? What started to make the story fall apart? Well, you know, it wasn't exactly a gradual unraveling. What happened was first there's one suspect, publicly identified suspect, Alan Swanson, and the case against Swanson falls apart long before there's enough evidence to charge him. Later, there's a more serious suspect, Willie Bennett, and, you know, he is, again, publicly identified basically as a suspect. But he's never charged. The officials are claiming they have sort of solved this murder. But the things that should happen after that, like an indictment, never do. And I think that's when there began to be a growing sense of skepticism about the Stewart. But, you know, it really all fell apart in a day. You know, when Stewart's brother, Matthew, goes to police and says, my brother did it. When I pulled up to the car, he said, man, wait a second. And I'm in my driver's seat. He's in his driver's seat. I said, wait a second, he bent down a little bit, so I'm looking forward and I'm looking back over at him. I can see something just beyond him, but it's it's basically a glimpse, a small portion of whatever's there. And then he he said, wait a second, and he pulled up. He goes, all right, get the fuck out of here, drive slow. And he taught, and he gave it a toss with his, with his left hand like that. Through the open window. Through the open window. There were at least 33 people who knew by the time he went off the bridge that he had done it. And uh, they include family members, friends of family members, people he had gone to say, I'd like to get rid of my wife. Will you help me? In the great tradition of criminals everywhere, and I can tell you as a former crime reporter, criminals are terrible at keeping their mouths shut. They really are. They cannot help telling somebody what they know and what they did. And it just became this game of telephone. So I got to ask you, because as a crime reporter, I am, I am really curious about this. One, I think to the outside world, because people mostly get what they get from television, they think the criminals are a lot more sophisticated than they are. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who is a crime reporter, how did this fall in the pantheon of just criminal behavior? Obviously, it became a sensational national story. But when you saw this, you were like, oh, yeah, that's like. Nine times out of 10, if the spouse gets killed, the other spouse is the first suspect. Or, yeah, I've seen this happen several times where everybody else knew and they just didn't come forward. Was this an outlier for crime stories that you'd covered in your career? Or was it pretty much along the lines of what you've seen before? That's just along the lines. But I would back up and say that in 1989, I think the idea that the husband is always the first person to look at was less embedded than it is now. 
This is a little bit before a lifetime and court TV had taught us that the <laughs> husband always did it. Right. There was the fact that Stuart had been wounded himself, which was a big factor there, particularly with the police. And when you talk to the cops now and say, why didn't you look harder at him? They'll always say, well, look how wounded he was. Who would do that to himself? And, uh, you know, so there was that, too. But I take your point. I think people think that criminals, including Chuck Stewart himself, are more clever than they really are. How did this sort of, if you talk about it as a game of telephone, how did this leak through the rest of the family? Did everybody else in his family know? Were, were they all just comfortable keeping the secret? Was that a reflection of them just trying to keep Chuck safe? Was that a reflection of them not necessarily liking his wife? How did this stay within the family before you even get to the fact that he approached several people to assist him in this crime? It was the other way around. A lot of the family didn't know until the day before. One of his brothers is a Revere firefighter, and he's on a recorded line in the fire department calling his siblings saying, Matthew's going to the police. Somebody's got to tell mom. He's literally saying, we got to tell mom and dad. And we're not going to tell mom and dad everything, but we got to tell mom and dad. We can't let them find out from television. So some of them found out then. But he had been contemplating this for months. Chuck Stewart, I mean, before he did it, he had gone to a couple of people to say, gee, would you help me? They said no, but they didn't do anything else. So yeah, it was kind of out there. And the day after the murder, Matthew Stewart picks up his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend, I forget, takes her to breakfast, buys her the Herald with a picture of Carol Stewart all over the front page and lays it all out to her. It was one of those things where Everybody told one person who wouldn't tell anybody. And before you know it, 20 people know. I'm curious, between the girlfriend, people having clues, people having ideas, was anybody eventually prosecuted for withholding information from the police? Or were any of the police disciplined for not pursuing obvious leads because they had just decided they wanted to, to tear down black people and they were convinced that it was a black uh, perpetrator? Two people were prosecuted eventually for withholding information. One of them was Matthew Stewart himself, and the other was his close friend, a guy named Jack McMahon. And they both did, I believe it was a couple of years in state prison, if that. And uh, as for police, the only discipline any police officer suffered, one detective was suspended for five days for swearing in an interrogation, which is the definition of a slap on the wrist. They weren't punished for not pursuing leads at all. We're going to take a short break. We come back more about the Murder in Boston podcast with host Adrian Walker. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the Murder in Boston podcast with host Adrian Walker. You talk to a lot of folks in the black community, including the family members of Willie Bennett, who cops initially blamed for the Stewart shooting. Some of his relatives were happy to talk to you, but not everybody. Here's a message you got from his nephew. We're going to play that. Get your thoughts on the other side. This is Joe Bennett, man. Won't you have a conversation with me next time before you try to have a conversation with my family? Unless y'all paying my family for this story, this is exclusive. Y'all not getting this story. So to go behind my back and try to talk to my family is wrong. So don't do that. The Bennett family, they were in public housing. Were they a family that had a history with law enforcement? What was it about Willie Bennett that made him an easy target for the sort of police aggression? What was it about the Bennett family that made them easy scapegoats for this before the whole story fell apart? 
Oh, Willie Pettit, and I'm using a term his own family uses. Willie was a badass. He had an extensive history with the Boston Police Department. There was an incident where he robbed a cabbie with prosthetic legs and stole the leg. There was another incident where he shot at a police officer. Willie was very well known to the Boston Police Department. And other members of his family had more low-key, less intense dealings with BPD as well. Yeah, they were. there was definitely that. In other words, had there never been a confession from the Stewart family, from any member of the Stewart family, there's a lot of people who wouldn't have necessarily shed any tears about Willie Bennett being thrown away for a crime, even if it was a crime he didn't commit. That's correct. And, you know, and of course, there is no evidence, none, zero, that he ever committed this crime or ever. He didn't murder anybody. Willie Bennett was a street criminal. Willie Bennett, like, would rob your liquor store, but he didn't murder people. And just follow up for this, because I I think it's important people to understand, is Willie Bennett still alive? And what does he say or not say about this experience that even if he was just sort of your neighborhood hustler, obviously put him on a path and changed the trajectory of his life? Is he still alive today? What does he say? And did he want to participate in this podcast? Willie Bennett is 73 years old. He is alive. He is not in good health. He is not really uh, doing interviews at this point. He has talked once or twice over the years, not at great length about this experience. I interviewed him actually really briefly around 2012 when Matthew Stewart died, but he's not talking at this point, which is why everybody ended up dealing with his family members instead. One of the other things that came through in the podcast and, and was really telling is that since there were so few consequences, since very few of the police ever had to face any consequences for ransacking the Bennett's for harassing their family. Even after they sued the city, their settlement was $12,000. It was nothing. Do you think that part of what has made this story continue to have such resonance in Boston is the fact that there has been no reconciliation? Yeah, partly. And I think that the lack of reconciliation, the way the city had never come to terms with it, was central to why we wanted to do the story in the first place. It was a relatively recent history that I think a lot of people weren't very conscious of. It was a story a lot of people didn't know well. Three quarters of the people who live in Boston now weren't here for it. And, uh, you know, it's new to a lot of people. But certainly the Bennett's have been shafted over the years. And there was never any attempt to really make them whole in any way. One of the things that's talked about and that you cover also in a podcast is, look, long after Charles Stewart was the killer and killed himself, The Bennett family says the police never stopped harassing Willie or the rest of the family. Can you describe some of what happened to the Bennett's in the subsequent years, even after it was made clear that Willie Bennett didn't have anything to do with this murder? Willie Bennett eventually went to jail for a number of years on an unrelated case involving a robbery of a video store in Brookline, which is just outside of Boston. I think the whole family has suffered. I interviewed, along with my colleague Gavin Allen, I interviewed Willie's sister, Vita Bennett, who said, I haven't had a good night's sleep since 1989. They believe that it killed their grandmother, Pauline Bennett. And this has been a huge cross to bear for the entire Bennett family. People like to hear that there's some sort of positive aftermath to this story. Did this murder, did the failure to actually find the murder, because it just came through a family confession, did the abuse of the Black community in Mission Hill did that lead to any changes? You said the same mayor got reelected by a huge amount. Were there any changes to the police department at the time, or was it simply moving on and, and business as usual, even after all this destruction? 
I want to back up for a second and say that it's really appalling to talk to police and prosecutors now who still claim 34 years later, absent any evidence, absent anything, that they believe Willie Bennett was involved. And you hear this from these guys. It's really staggering to me. I think Willie had something to do with it. I think they knew each other. I could be wrong. Willie could be the innocent guy in the world. My mind will never know. And the people will never know who pulled the trigger. As to the effects three to five years later, it did prompt some changes in the police department. In the wake of it, there was a commission led by a lawyer named James St. Clair, who, uh, looking at the Boston Police Department, who recommended a number of reforms, the first one being firing the police commissioner, who was eventually pushed out, Mickey Roach. I think it opened the door to community policing in a way and led in a sort of backdoor way to better police community relations. Well, it, it led first to terrible, much worse police community relations. But I think there was an effort to mend some fences that did have some positive effects down the line. When you look back, is there some semi-positive things that, that come out of this? What's the thing they want everybody to take away from this? What is the thing that somebody who's listening to this right now in Central Texas, a college student who's listening to this in Berkeley, somebody across the country who hears this story, who listens to this podcast, what's the positive thing you want them to take from it? What's something you would want them to do after they were finished that would make you say, all right, cool, we accomplished something with this? I want people to understand the importance and the power of a story like this. I want people to understand the importance of reckoning with things. That's a lot of what this story is about. And I want people to ask themselves the question you just asked me. What would I do in this situation? How would this play out today? How would I respond to this today? Adrian Walker is the host of the Murder in Boston podcast. Honestly, audience, it's absolutely fantastic. Like, you really do want to listen to this. Not while you're working out, you're going to get angry. But you do really want to listen to this podcast. The HBO documentary is also available on Max. Adrian Walker, thank you so much for joining me today on A Word. Such a pleasure. Thank you. That's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. <laughs>